Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. If we've never met, my name's Jay, and I'm part of the team here at Westgate. We are so glad you're here. We're so thrilled you're here. It's so fun to see all of you. Now we've got folks uh, sitting out in the tent. So glad you're here as well. And then everybody watching online, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, the last couple of weeks, if you've been around, and if you haven't been around, that's okay. Maybe today's your first time, and if that's you, man, we're, we're like especially thrilled you're here, welcome. Uh, but if you have been around the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been in a teaching series that we've been calling Called Out, which is a bit aggressive. So uh, I'll explain later. We, we don't mean it to be that aggressive. We're not like calling you out, um, although we are a little bit, a little bit. Uh, but um, this series has been an exploration about what the church is. Like, what is the church? What do we mean when we say the church, or I go to church, or I belong to a church, or I hate the church, or whatever it is. Like, what do we mean? And uh, before we get into the teaching today, I just, um, I want to share a bit. This is kind of tailing off of Lisa's message last Sunday, if you were here. Lisa spoke powerfully about how the church is not like a building. It's not just a place you go or a service that you attend. Although the fact that you are here today is a big deal. And what we do as we sing together and dive into the scriptures together here on Sundays is obviously critically important. But the church is a people and a people to whom we are called to belong. And so for the next three Sundays, in fact, I just I, I want to um, invite you to something. Um, maybe, again, maybe this is your first time here, or maybe you've been here for like a long, long time or something in between. But whoever you are, I want to ask you to ask yourself prayerfully, if you're the praying sort, um, a question. Like, have you reached the deepest levels of belonging to this community? And, and we're not forcing it on you. We're not saying like, if you haven't, you're a bad Christian. It's nothing like that. All we want to do, we're not selling you anything. We just want to invite you. The next three weeks, we're doing something called Next Steps Weekend. And it starts today. And when you were showing up here, if you're here in the room, uh, you probably saw it out on our patio, these big banners and the tables. Next Steps Weekend. And all these next three weekends are about is inviting you to take whatever your next step is into the life of this church community in such a way that eventually, hopefully, or prayerfully, our prayer is that it begins to feel like family. And so maybe you're brand new. Maybe you're brand new to faith, or maybe you're not a Christian and you're just exploring or you're searching for hope. Or maybe you've been here a while, but you don't really know all that much about Westgate. Or maybe you know about Westgate, but you haven't really jumped in to becoming a follower of Jesus with us, a disciple and what we mean when we say discipleship. Or maybe you need a space to learn about very specific things that you're dealing with in your life, whether it's parenting or marriage or navigating career or vocation or whatever it might be. 
Um, there are all sorts of next step opportunities for you to learn more. And so if that's you, I would invite you to consider which one might be right for you. If you're not a Christian or you're just exploring faith, Alpha is this beautiful, safe, welcoming environment where you can learn more about faith and ask all of your questions, share all of your doubts. Um, Discover Westgate is, uh, we do that about once a month, once every six weeks or something like that. And that's a space for about an hour and a half where uh, we get to just hang out and you get to ask whatever questions you have about our church. Intro to 640 Life is the whole deal where we talk about what we mean when we say let's follow Jesus together. And then, of course, we offer all sorts of labs, all sorts of learning opportunities. You'll hear more about that as we get into the fall. So maybe that's you. Maybe you're in a place where you just need to learn more. If that's you, man, we'd love to chat with you. Maybe you know some of that stuff or you've gone through some of that stuff, but you still feel kind of alone here. Maybe the next step for you is to come together with other people to follow Jesus in community. So maybe what, what your next step might be is like a life group, jumping into a small group of like 8 to 12 to 13 people, maybe in a coffee shop or one of our rooms here at the church or on Zoom or in a home, and just really sharing life together and learning um, to love and care for one another. Maybe you're not quite ready for that yet. Maybe what you need is like a mid-sized gathering or a mid-sized group. We've got mid-sized groups for like young professionals and college students and young families. And we're building out further mid-sized communities. And they're really casual and just kind of like come and go. But a great opportunity to meet new folks. Listen, I'm new to our church as well. I've been back for about a year. My wife and I have met so many people at some mid-sized gatherings that we've gone to. Like they've led to like dinners and play dates with our kids and stuff. It's a beautiful way to come together and get to know some people in a church our size. It's really easy to just come and go and not ever know anyone. So maybe mid-sized group is for you. Or maybe you're dealing with something that's really specific, some sort of hurt, pain, trauma, whatever it might be. We have a really rich, robust care ministry here. Ben Pierce is our pastor of care. And we've got great resource, resources for you. So we'd love to come alongside you if that's what you need. And then for some of us, we just need to jump in and begin to serve. There are all sorts of serving opportunities here, like right here at Westgate or around our city. It's one of the things I'm proudest about in terms of who we are as a church, that we're an outward-facing church. We do all sorts of things. We've got a beautiful day coming up in October. You'll hear more about that. And then we've got incredible opportunities to serve all around the world. Kayvon, who is our global compassion pastor, I don't think he has slept this week because he's been on the phone with some of our ministry partners in Afghanistan and Haiti, like all through the night, trying to work things out. Uh, as much as we can. And so there are all sorts of opportunities there. So I share all of that detail with you simply to invite you when you are ready, as God compels you, take your next step or at least explore what that would look like. You can go to our website or you can just visit us out on the patio uh, today after the service and, and get more info. We'd love to meet you. Sound good? Okay. All right. Uh, let's begin. Um, we've been in this series called Called Out, What the Church Is. And uh, we've explored the church as a people who love God together. We've explored the church as a people who love one another. And today I want to explore the church as a people who've been called out to love our neighbors, to love our world, to love all those 
around us and even those who are far from us. And to begin, I want to share a story from my life. About 20 years ago, uh, when I was in college, I had a good friend who was also in college, and he got a job as a waiter at a Japanese restaurant in Santana Row. This is 20 years ago. It's when it had just opened, um, and they just closed, I think. It's called Blowfish. And um, my friend got a job like before they opened as a waiter at Blowfish. And so my friend, he invited me and a couple of other friends to something called a soft opening. Restaurants do this when they open and they're just testing things out and their waiters are, and servers are gaining some experience. And so we went to this soft opening and we sat down and the service was atrocious because they, they had never done this before and everything was slow and our orders were wrong and we got food that we didn't order and we didn't get the food that we did order and we never got our waters and it was just really bad, you know? But it was our friend. It was our friend who was our waiter. <laughs> and so what do we do? We were like, hey, dude, don't worry about it. It's fine. No, take your time. It's okay. You know what? Help the other tables. We're okay. Man, whatever. Just bring us whatever. Bring us nothing. We're not even hungry. Just <laughs> hang out. Whatever. Just give us a bill. It's okay. You know? <laughs> We're just super kind to him. Why? Because he's our friend. And so at the end of the night, after this atrocious service where we like barely got our food and had no water and we're thirsty, and we're like, you want to go to McDonald's after this? And <laughs> so, you know? Like we pay our bill and we leave our friend this giant tip. And we like write a note on the receipts, like great job. It's like, you didn't do a great job. We were like, great job. You're the best waiter ever. You know, it's just like all this nonsense, right? But it makes sense to you because this is our friend. Now I've been to restaurants before where I've had atrocious service before. And I am sad to confess to you that is not my typical response to bad service at a restaurant. Like I'm not typically like, don't worry about it. Just help the other tables. We don't need water. Water's overrated. You know, like that's not normally my response. Usually confession, I'm a jerk. I'm like, uh, excuse me, hello, we've been waiting four minutes for our food. You know, like just really impatient and just... I'm annoying, you know? I'm annoying if the service isn't impeccable. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about like going to a Michelin star restaurant where that's to be expected. I'm talking about like going to Chevy's, you know? And I'm like, where are my chips, you know? And just super angry, right? Okay, what is the difference? The difference is that in one example, the waiter is my friend. He's not really a waiter, he's my friend. In the other example, the waiter is not even really a waiter. The waiter, I would suggest to you, in my psyche, is just a tool. He or she is not even quite fully human to me. He or she is just a tool there to be leveraged for my benefit. And when a tool doesn't work appropriately, our natural instinct and response is to get upset and to be up in arms um, and to get really, really annoyed and to then begin treating one who is actually a human being with utter indifference and even anger. The writer Richard Beck in his book, Unclean, he says that the stranger is an anonymous mass toward which I feel indifference, fear, or frustration. The difference in the two stories is that on the one hand, this waiter is my friend, but on the other hand, this waiter is just a stranger, something less than human. 
Again, we've been in this series called Called Out. And the reason the series is called Called Out is because church, in the original language of the New Testament, Greek, is the word ekklesia. And ekklesia is the combination of two Greek words, ek, meaning out of, and kaleo, meaning called. And so church literally means the called out ones. And today what we want to do is explore the idea of the church, you and I, as one's people who are called out of a culture of division and polarization and dehumanization and vitriol, called out of that as a people who are called to love our neighbors, to love the stranger. That is what the church is called to be. And so to, to begin that exploration, we have to ask the question, who is my neighbor? When Westgate Church, and this is one of our values, to love our neighbors, when we say we want to love our neighbors, who are we talking about? And who are we not talking about? Who is my neighbor? In 1963, a cultural anthropologist named Edward Hall, he coined a phrase called proxemics. And proxemics is this fascinating study on how different cultures use physical, literal proximity to one another to display our relational closeness or, or distance from each other. That's the study of proxemics. It's pretty nerdy, but if you're that sort of person, feel free to check it out. It's really fascinating stuff. Now, to try to summarize some of Edward Hall's study here, I'll just give you an example. How, I'll give you an example by asking you a question. How many of you thoroughly enjoy spending time in elevators with strangers? Show of hands. <laughs> How many of you like, like this? You look forward to some time in an elevator with strangers. Anyone? Good, because if you raise your hand, you're a psycho, right? Nobody, <laughs> nobody likes time in elevators. I'm sorry. If you like time, in, you're not a psycho. You're just strange. Like, who likes that? It's so weird. Right? You know exactly what I'm talking about, especially if you're like in a busy hotel or a busy place. And you're even like, even as you begin walking toward the elevator, don't you feel some of us like we feel that anxiety? Like, okay, here I go, enclosed space with a bunch of people I don't know. And the reason for this is proxemics. The reason elevators feel so uncomfortable is because elevators are one of those cultural spaces where there is misalignment and incongruence between our relational connection to someone and the physical, literal proximity we have to share with them. Make sense? This is why in America today, there are about 320, I'm sorry, not in America, in the world, there are about 325 million elevator rides a day. A day, 325 million elevator rides. This sounds crazy, but the average elevator ride is about 30 seconds. That sounds long for some of us, but if you think about like Chicago or whatever, and you're just in the elevator for a long time going up these tall, tall buildings, it all averages out to about 30 seconds. What that means is human beings around the world spend 2.7 million hours on elevators a day, okay? 2.7 million hours a day on elevators. Studies have been done which show that 70% of elevator rides, 70% of elevator rides are in complete silence. Okay, what this means, I did the math. What this means 
is that there are almost 2 million hours of silence on elevators every single day. 2 million hours of just awkwardly standing very close to someone you want nothing to do with. This is why even when you approach an elevator with someone that you are really close to, and even if you've been in really robust conversation with them, the moment you get into the elevator, what happens to the, to the two of you? You act like strangers. Or if you really need to say something, what do you, how do you speak? You're like, hey man, do you wanna go to lunch after this? You're just like, whisper, why? That's so strange, why? Because of proxemics. The physical closeness is misaligned and incongruent with your actual feeling of relational closeness with the strangers in that space. Okay, this sounds like, I have no idea what this is about. What does this have to do with loving our neighbors? At the time of Jesus, this was a big deal, like a bigger deal than elevators. As awkward as you feel in elevators, at the time of Jesus in the first century Jewish world, they didn't have the phrase proxemics at the time, but they lived and embodied the awkwardness of proxemics everywhere they went. To be physically close to someone to whom you had relational distance was not just awkward at the time of Jesus, it was literally against the law in the Jewish world. You know where we see this very profoundly? It's a story you all know the story of the Good Samaritan. I won't read the entire story. Most of us are familiar. Even if you're not Christian, you're probably somewhat familiar with the story. How does the story go? Jesus tells a parable. And he tells a parable to respond to a question from a man that is described as an expert in the law. What this means was that this man was a leader in the Jewish sort of religious system. The law is a religious term in the first century Jewish world. And so this is a Jewish religious leader. And this man comes to Jesus and he asks an all-important question. He says, listen, I know that the Bible, the Old Testament tells me I'm supposed to love God and to love my neighbor, but Jesus, who is my neighbor? And so the question this man is asking is, Jesus, for me to inherit eternal life, that's, his, that's how he um, prefaces his question, for me to inherit eternal life, who exactly do I have to love? Or in other words, what he's asking is, describe for me the boundaries within which I must love. What are, the, what are the boundaries of who is considered my neighbor and who is not? And then Jesus, to answer the question, tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And he tells this story that there is a Jewish man who is beaten by robbers and left for dead on the side of a road. And then a Jewish priest walks by, sees the man, and doesn't even come close and passes right on by. And then a Levite, who was essentially like a Jewish worship leader at the time, sees the man and doesn't even come close and walks right on by. Now, there is reason for this. It has to do with proxemics. In the Jewish world, for religious leaders like priests and Levites, they were legally, they were not allowed to draw near to someone who was dead. And what most scholars believe is that this story would have made sense to Jesus' first audience because this man that was beaten on the side of the road, he would have been laying there looking like a dead man. And so the point Jesus is making, he's making several points, but one of the points he is making in the Good Samaritan story is that for the Jewish priest and the Jewish Levite, 
They are living their lives adhering to the very strict religious boundaries of their day. That there are certain people they can draw close to and certain people they must keep distance from. Now remember this is in response to a question about who is my neighbor. And then you know how the story goes. A Samaritan begins to walk down the road, sees the Jewish man on the side of the road, and the Samaritan breaks the boundary and draws near. Now, on one hand, we might say, well, that's because Samaritans weren't Jews and they didn't have the same laws about keeping distance from a a dead body, and they probably thought the man was dead. But here's the deal. The, the um, anger and hostility between Jews and Samaritans was like a thousand years old by the time Jesus arrives on the scene. Jews and Samaritans were like, they were like arch enemies. They hated each other. They despised each other. For a Samaritan man to help a Jewish man or vice versa was unheard of. This was a scandalous story. The Samaritan man doesn't allow the limits, the boundaries of who he believed was his neighbor or not his neighbor to limit him or to keep him from helping the man on the side of the road. And then Jesus answers in Luke 10, 36 to 37. So he tells the story and then he looks at the expert in the law and he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, the Samaritan. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Okay, do you see what Jesus is doing here? The expert in the law asked the question, who is my neighbor? He didn't say, how can I be a good neighbor? He asked the question, who is my neighbor? If you think about that question for a bit, Think about what's happening here. The man, the expert in the law, is relinquishing control. He's essentially saying, tell me the boundaries and who is included, and then I'll do what I'm supposed to do to the people who I'm supposed to consider neighbors. Jesus turns the question around, and he actually says, okay, not was this Jewish man the Samaritan's neighbor or not. That's not what he says. He says, Who was the neighbor? And then the expert in the law is in this really strange position where he has to say like the Samaritan man, the one who had, he can't even say Samaritan. He says the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? This is like mind blowing, you guys. Essentially, the expert in the law asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus brilliantly turns the question around and essentially asks the expert in the law in return, that's the wrong question. The question is, to whom must you become a neighbor? Do you see that? Jesus doesn't answer the question. He actually says, you have to be the neighbor. This is brilliant because the neighbor is not necessarily the one who is close The neighbor is the one who gets close and to whom we get close. When we ask the question, who is my neighbor? Most of the time we are looking around our neighborhood and asking Bob and Julie and Michelle and Samantha and Joy and Peter. 
Maybe they're my neighbors. Or you're working around, you're looking around your workplace and you're saying, the guy in this cubicle and then the CFO in that office, maybe they're my neighbors. But this guy in the mailroom, no way. Who cares about him? That's usually the question we're asking, trying to identify who are our neighbors. And yet, when we ask the question, Jesus, who is my neighbor? You know what Jesus says? He says, actually, the question is, to whom must you become a neighbor? He flips the question around on you and on me. Being a neighbor is a reciprocal activity and it is within our control. Do you see the brilliance of this? You know who your neighbor is? It is anyone you choose to get close to. Do you know who your neighbor is? It is the person that is lying on the side of the road where everyone else is passing them by. And that person isn't your neighbor simply because you are drawn to them. That person becomes your neighbor as you get close to them. And the way they become your neighbor is because you make the first move to be their neighbor. What this means, big picture, long story short, what this means is that anyone and everyone can be your neighbor. That anyone and everyone is within the reach and the boundaries of your mercy. Remember what Jesus says. Who was the neighbor to this man? And the expert in the law says, the one who had mercy on him. The Samaritan was the neighbor. And so the question in many ways, who is my neighbor, is answered this way. You are the neighbor. You are the neighbor. You make neighbors as you get close to whoever it is God is calling you toward. A neighbor is anybody God compels you to get close to. Anyone God compels you to serve, to come alongside, to lift up, to show mercy, compassion, grace, empathy to lean into their pain, to lean into their hurt, to lean into their anxiety, to lean into their trauma, whatever it might be, whoever God is calling you to, that is your neighbor. And you know how they become your neighbor? As you become their neighbor. And in order for us to do this work, to get close, to break the boundaries of proxemics, we have to begin seeing beyond the worldly and cultural paradigms that we are so used to. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory has this fantastic quote. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And that last phrase, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors, what Lewis intended was that it has everything to do with your perspective toward the person. You can choose to see them as a horror or as a splendor. 
The question, who is my neighbor, is not a question that is defined by boundaries. It is a question that is defined by your willingness to get close. Which is defined and driven and fueled by your ability to see, not from a worldly point of view, from a Christ point of view. Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one, Jesus, died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Verse 16. So from now on. What? We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. That annoying neighbor is not just your horrific neighbor. That annoying coworker is not just your horrific coworker. That annoying classmate is not just your horrific classmate. That annoying spouse is not just your horrific spouse. These are everlasting splendors imbued with the imago Dei, the image of God. And if you want to answer the question, who is my neighbor? You must begin to see those around you, not from a worldly point of view, but from the perspective of Christ, that they are men, women, children imbued again with intrinsic value because God loves them and has created them in his image. So what happens when we regard no one from a worldly point of view? Well, Paul continues, 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. We all love this part. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Check this out, you guys. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. You know how you figure out who your neighbor is? You live as if the God who loves everyone is making his appeal of love to everyone through you. If you have received the love of God, giving that love to others as an appeal from God through you is not an option. Look at John 13. Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you should love one another. No, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know why you're all alive right now? Because blood is pumping through your veins into and out of your heart and keeping your brain alive, oxygenating your brain. You know what that looks like? Let me show you a real quick chart, not to get too nerdy here. This is how blood flows through your body. Blood, unoxygenated blood enters the right atrium and it pumps into the right ventricle and the right ventricle pumps the blood to the lungs and then your lungs oxygenate the blood and then your blood leaves the lungs through the left atrium, or I'm sorry, it goes into the left atrium of your heart 
and then out to the left ventricle, and then from the left ventricle, it goes through the aortic valve to the rest of your body, including your brain, oxygenating your brain, keeping you alive, keeping you a sane, thinking human person. And then that blood then gets deoxygenated as the oxygen pumps through your body. And then the deoxygenated blood pumps right back into your heart through the right atrium and then so on and so forth. It's just a cycle of receiving and giving, receiving and giving. That's why you're alive. If the blood in your body stopped receiving and giving, receiving and giving, you know what would happen to you? You would die. And so it is with the love of God. If you receive the love of God, you must give the love of God. And as you give the love of God, a magical, profound thing happens. You begin to receive the love of God. This is why Jesus says what he says. This is why every Christian, in the words of of Charles Spurgeon, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. You either are the sort of person who is living your life trying to share the love of God with others, or you're not really a Christian. So a couple of thoughts. How do you do this practically? This is so simple. Uh, This comes from my friend Karina, who's a worship pastor for us. She's teaching over at South Hills today. And so simple, but profound. She tries to live a life of love toward neighbors, to be the sort of person who makes neighbors of all people by getting close when no one else will get close. And she does this by splitting up her focus into three parts. One, before the moments happen, in the moments, and then after the moments. And it's so simple, you guys. She begins by praying at the beginning of every day, God, would you give me opportunity to love those who um, you love deeply today? And it sets her up to see the world, not from a worldly point of view, but from a Christ-centered point of view. And then when she stumbles upon an opportunity to love her neighbor, whoever that neighbor might be, she, she says she listens, like really listens to the person and to the spirit of God, and then she boldly shares good news. That might be the literal good news of the gospel, or it might be some form of good news that that person needs in their particular moment or circumstance. And then after the moment, she always writes it down and she continues to pray. Really simple, but really helpful. To begin to posture ourselves as the sort of people who no longer see through a worldly point of view, but the sort of people who get close to those all around us. When I think about loving our neighbors, you know who comes to mind? Um, Lots of people, but one of the people that comes to mind is my friend Nini. I have a photo of her here. This is a photo of Nini, uh, who's a dear friend of mine, with her dear friend, Brian. This photo was taken just a few hours before Nini would literally lay herself down on an operating table to give her kidney to Brian. And um, I asked her about this, and she said, because of legal issues, when you donate an organ, you, nobody, can lay, nobody can even assist you in laying down on the operating table. Do you know that? Because if someone even slightly assists you, they're afraid that you can come back and say, oh, you pushed me on the table. You forced me to do it. Like literally, she had to walk into an operating room 
by herself, all alone, scared out of her mind. She's a young mom of two young kids, and she's giving literally a healthy kidney so that a friend of hers could live. She talked about how she had to lay herself down and her hands were trembling. And all of a sudden, all of the fear, all of the anxiety, what if something goes wrong? What if I don't wake up? What if my children have no mom because I'm giving this thing away? And then she talks about how she told me how the love of God overwhelmed her. She received the love of God. She talks about how in that moment, alone in that operating room, she knew she was overwhelmed by this sense that God was with her and that God loves her more than she could possibly imagine. And it gave her the confidence to lay on that table, to give her literal body to a friend who needed it. And you know what she says now? She said, if I, I just talked to her this, this uh, a couple weeks ago, and she said this, if I had another kidney to give, I would gladly give it to someone in need because I know that I'm here for more than the everyday grind. When you live as a neighbor to those that God brings down your path, you begin to receive and give the love of God in a profound way, and it gives you a sort of meaning and significance to life that you cannot achieve any other way. The writer Andrew Peterson puts it this way, that the Lord can redeem your impulse for self-preservation by easing you toward love, which is never about self. You have to climb out from under the bushel and share your light with those around you. You have to believe that you're precious to the king of creation and not just a waste of space. You have to believe that God loves you so much that the amount of love he pours into you cannot possibly be held in you alone. That he loves you so much that his love overflows from you to others who need to know and experience the same. Some of you know the name Eugene Peterson, who's the um, writer of the, the paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. He was an incredible pastor, an author of many books, many books which changed my life, the trajectory of my life in ministry. And if you don't know, Eugene Peterson died a few years ago and at his memorial service, his son, Leif Peterson, who is also a pastor, gave this beautiful eulogy. And he got up and he said, Dad, you fooled them. You fooled them. And what Leif Peterson meant was this, that Eugene Peterson had written like dozens and dozens of books and he had paraphrased the entire Bible and all of these people, all of these Christians around the world thought that Eugene Peterson had like a myriad of things to say and a million different ideas um, presented in dozens and dozens of different books. And Leif Peterson, his son said, no, the truth is my dad had only one message and one message alone. And then he tells this story. He says, the message my dad had for all of you is the same message that he whispered in my ear as I went to bed every night as a young child all the way until I was an adult when he would call me or text me and say the same exact words. For decades, my dad told me the same thing at the end of every day, and it is the only message he had to speak to the world. And it was this. God loves you, 
He's on your side. He's coming after you, and he's relentless. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you, and he's relentless. To be a neighbor means to embrace that reality in your own life and to embody that reality to a world in need, alone, lost, hurting, and abandoned. To get close to anyone and everyone God brings your way. To become the neighbor so that they become your neighbor and to in action, in words and in deed, speak to them with your life. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you and he's relentless. That's what it means to love our neighbors. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for loving us enough to give your life in such a profound and sacrificial way. We thank you that you are on our side, that you're coming after us, and that you are relentless. As we consider what it means for us as a church to love our neighbors and to love them well, we ask that you would help us to embody that truth for a world in need to speak that message with our words and our actions, to get close when no one else is willing to get close, to expand the boundaries of who could belong into your family, just as you expanded the boundaries for us so that we might belong. We love you and we thank you. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.